All right. Most of the kiddos are heading downstairs, but before these two do, I just want to introduce them to you. Uh, this over here is Mordecai. Here, you stand here. Let everybody see you there. Can you say hello to everyone? Hi, there's Mordecai. And over here we have Caspian. And they want to just say hello to you this morning and introduce themselves. Can you say hello? <laughs> All right, you guys ready for class? All right, you guys can go ahead and head downstairs to class, okay? Follow Mordecai right there, buddy. Good job. Oh, they're excited now. I would ask that you please open your Bibles at this time to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Last week, we began making our way through the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is all about the promise of a good king who is going to come and establish a good kingdom. And all of the incredible events of this book begin in a dusty, middle-of-nowhere town with seemingly insignificant people. And one of those people, Hannah, was desperate to have a son. But physically, she was unable to bear children. Now, after experiencing years and years of anguish and torment, she finally came to the end of herself and realized that the Lord was truly what she needed in order to have joy. And in her prayers, she promised that if the Lord would only bless her with a child, she would give him right back to the Lord's service. And then the text tells us that she went away and she was no longer sad. Today, we pick up the story this morning, the morning after Hannah prayed that heartfelt prayer of lament. We're picking up the very next day, so please follow along, starting in verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever." Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent, to him, lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, I ask that you would help us to understand that this is living and active, that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is capable of cutting between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit, that it can get to the deepest part of who we are. And Lord, today I ask that your word would do just that. That today, your word would cut through all of the barriers that we build in our mind, all of the barriers that we build in our soul, that we try to keep ourselves insulated from the transforming grace that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that today, by your word, we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we would be made like him and that would happen by the proclamation of your word. Lord, I thank you that today uh, you are able to, by your Holy Spirit, take these words and apply them to us. So today we ask that you would indeed do a good work of transformation in our lives, that we might be like Jesus, your son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. The way that we're going to approach the text this morning is to first do a simple walkthrough where we analyze the story and make sure that we're going to understand what's taking place here in the narrative. And then we will frame the remainder of our time around three application points 
which will serve as a large portion of our service this morning. Look again with me to verse 19. There it says, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Now, as a reminder, this sentence takes place directly after, one day after Hannah has prayed for a child. That prayer where she was laying face down, where her lips were moving, and Eli looked at her and said, I can't hear her. She must be drunk. The next day, what is she doing? She rises early in the morning and she worships before the Lord. She was not yet pregnant. Her circumstances had not yet changed. Even so, notice that Hannah worshiped the Lord. Right away, our text this morning is reminding us that our worship of the Lord must never be contingent upon you getting what you want. Think of Job who rightly stood before the Lord in prayer on one of the worst days of his life, the day when all of his stuff was taken away, all of his animals, all of his wealth was removed from him. And then he gets that last message, the one that must have been the backbreaker, the one where somebody came to him and said, your seven children who were all together in a house celebrating and partying, a wind came and knocked the house down and crushed them all to death. Imagine the crushing weight that would have on his soul. And how does he respond? Rightly, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't respond just to the good gifts God gives us. We respond in worship when we don't get what we want. And that is exactly what Hannah does here. She had learned to worship rightly, even before the Lord gave her the desire of her heart. Verse 19 continues, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now, I have a problem. <laughs> I have a big problem. <laughs> um, I lose things all the time. If my wife was in here, she would be nodding gratuitously. My Bible, my keys, my wallet, my phone, my headphones, you name it. I put things down. And when I put them down, I'm not thinking about putting them down. And then when I need them again, I begin to wonder where on earth did I place them. In fact, as I'm speaking right now, I'm looking and I don't know where my keys are. They're probably on my desk in my office. I literally have no idea because I have a tendency to do this. I put things somewhere and I forget where they are. One of the important things that you have to keep in mind when you come across a phrase like this, where it says, God remembered her, is that it is not saying God is altogether like you. God does not remember things in the same way that we remember things because God does not forget things like we forget things. I like how Richard Phillips explains this in his commentary. He says, This does not suggest that God had previously forgotten Hannah or that he was too busy running the universe to pay attention to her needs before she pointed them out. It means rather that God was mindful of her prayer and ordered events to work in blessing for Hannah. Now, we see this terminology of remembering used in relation to God on multiple occasions in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 8.1, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in the ark with him. This is the turning point in the story of Noah. This is the most significant transition that takes place in his narrative. But God had not forgotten Noah when he gave Noah the blueprints of the ark or when he sent the animals to Noah or when he closed the door to the ark or when God served as the admiral of the ship. There was nobody driving. There was no steering wheel. It was God who kept that ship from being smashed against the rocks as everyone else was being drowned and the waters were rising amongst the mountains. Was God forgetful of him in those moments? Absolutely not. God had never forgotten Noah. The word remembered mean that, means that God was actively working to continue to the next stage of saving Noah and his family from destruction. Remembered is a salvific term. Why did God spare Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Interestingly, Genesis tells us that it's because God remembered Abraham's prayer. Genesis 19.29 says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley... God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. In other words, why did God save Lot? It's because Abraham had prayed and asked the Lord to save him. 
When we read about God's remembrance, it's typically associated with the prayers of his people. Genesis 30, 22 is a great example of this. It says, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Clearly, God's remembrance of her is a reference to hearing her prayers and answering them. Sometimes God's remembrance is tied to the fulfillment of his covenant. For example, Exodus 2.24, when God was getting ready to send Moses to deliver the people, we read, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Sometimes we sing the song, Sovereign Over Us, and there is a line in that song that says, his plans are still to prosper, he has not forgotten us. God has not forgotten you. Reading a passage like this one should not cause you to think that the Lord has ever forgotten you, but that he always remembers his people. He always sets his eye of affection on us. He is always working salvation and blessing in a better way than we would ever choose for ourselves. In the earlier parts of this chapter, it's clear, Hannah felt alone. She felt abandoned. She felt forgotten. But God remembered Hannah. And in her case, that resulted in the blessing of a, li- of a child. Verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. One of the biggest decisions that you ever make when you have children is what you're going to name that baby. And there are all sorts of ways that people choose those names and make those decisions. I mean, if you've ever had to make that decision, you, you know what happens. You begin by thinking of all the names you don't, do not want. There's absolutely no way we are naming the child this, right? There's a person in our lives that we know that we are not going there. And then it's, okay, what about this name? And I would suggest one, and Ashley says, no, absolutely not. I suggest another one, and Ashley says, no way, not, no, nope, not going to happen. And eventually, I'm relentless enough that she says, okay, maybe that one sounds good. That one sounds good. That's how it works in our home. And uh, as we're making our decisions of naming our children, we always want to make sure that we're doing it wisely. In this point in biblical history, children are not named on a whim, and they certainly are not just named on a name that you like. They are named after what is going on in the circumstances of their birth. And Jacob, for example, was holding the heel of his brother and was trying to beat him to be the first one out of the birth canal. He was trying to usurp his brother, so his parents named him Jacob, which means usurper or deceiver, the one who's trying to deceive his way into the first place. Now, Esau, his brother, was named Esau because he was covered in red hair. Esau just means red. You look at the kid and you're like, wow, that that is a red baby right there. That is a really, really red baby. That's what your name will be. That's typically how we name our pets. That's how they name their kids in these days. And as we make our way forward through the book of Samuel, we're going to see that the names in this book are incredibly significant. So why exactly does Hannah give Samuel his name? Because it sounds exactly like the word in Hebrew for ask. In fact, because in this time, Hebrew didn't have, like now if you look at Hebrew, it's got all those dots on it. Uh, those are the vowels. Those didn't exist back then. So the, the spelling of the word in the original language for ask and the spelling for Samuel is identical. It's the exact same. And so here when she says, I named him ask because I asked from the Lord. Therefore, she named him Samuel. Verse 21, the man Elkanah and, his, and all his house went to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now at this point, we've arrived at the one-year mark from when we focused on last, uh, last week where Hannah was praying. It is now the one-year mark, the annual trip back to Shiloh to worship. But at this point, Hannah says, I'm not going. I'm not ready to return yet. And she knows that the next time she makes that journey, she's going to return home once again without a child. So she doesn't go back that first year. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained there and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, as I said last week, we don't hear much from Elkanah, but what we do hear from him speaks volumes. And I want you to see two things about him at this juncture. 
First, I want you to consider the fact that Hannah is probably not the only one that wanted her to have a baby. It is my guess that as a man who the Scripture says truly loved her, don't you think he probably was excited about the fact that she was pregnant? Don't you think he was probably excited about the fact that she had this baby boy? And once he was born, don't you think that his fatherly instincts would have kicked in and caused him to delight in that child? Yet regardless of his feelings, he tells Hannah that he wants, above all else, that the Lord might establish his word. Now, you might find this interesting, I do, that he doesn't say when Hannah says, I'm not going to do this yet, I'm not going there yet, because when I do go, I'm going to leave him there forever. He doesn't say, yes, so you need to keep your word. He says, yes, so that the Lord may establish his word. I find that very interesting because up to this point in the book, God has not spoken a word. So what in the world is going on here? Now, we don't have time to go on a thorough, deep dive of this phrase throughout the Old Testament this morning, but let me just mention that it's always used as a way of speaking about God continuing to carry out his covenantal promises that he had made to his people. When he says that God might establish his word, he's saying so that God might keep the promises that he made, not to us, but to all of us, to the Israelites, to the people of God, that the the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that they might be established in us. In other words, Elkanah recognized that God was doing something way bigger than his own family and way bigger than his own desires. Although Elkanah certainly did not understand all of the details of what God was going to do through the life of Samuel, he did understand that God was the one who gave Samuel to them. He understood that this was not some natural phenomenon, and he definitely recognized that God was establishing his promises. In the Old Testament, everything is leading up to the fulfillment of the coming of Jesus Christ. Everything. And Samuel is going to serve as a very important parallel for Jesus in many ways. In fact, We're going to see over the next several chapters that there is literally nobody in the entire Old Testament that is more intentionally linked to the little boy Jesus than this little boy Samuel. That is not accidental. Through the life of this little boy that was born to seemingly insignificant people in a seemingly unimportant place, this was giving a foreshadowing of the one who would eventually come and carry out the promises of God. For in Jesus, every promise finds its yes and its amen. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promises are found in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that Elkanah was hoping for, everything that the faithful Israelites were trusting in, everything that the sacrifices that are even mentioned in this chapter were pointing forward to were all fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. If you're not a believer and you're here with us today, thank you so much for coming. If you have not yet been born again, I want you to know that there is good news. And even this chapter is faithfully looking to that good news that there would be a savior, a good king who would come and who would rule over his people. But he would do that by laying down his life to save us. Jesus Christ, the perfect holy son of God, came and he lived a life very unlike ours, one without sin. Even so, even though the wages of sin are death and that all of us are deserving, And that he was not deserving of death, even so he died for the sins of everyone that would ever be saved. If you are a Christian, the reason that you are a Christian is because Jesus carried your sins to the cross and he paid for them. And if you are not yet a Christian and you are in this room today, please know that your sins can be forgiven because Jesus paid it all at the cross. And if you will only believe in him and believe that his sacrifice was of value to pay for your sins, and if you believe that he rose from the dead and that he ascended to to God the Father on high and that he lives today to be your savior, if you believe in him, you will be saved. That's what Elkanah was looking forward to, even though he only understood it in a small shadow. Elkanah saw that shadow of God's promises, and he was trusting that even that little boy in Hannah's womb was working towards the fulfillment of God's promises, which leads us directly into the second thing that I want you to see about Elkanah. This is something that I don't think I had ever noticed before this week. David Samura says it really well in his commentary. He says that according to Numbers 3.13, quote, It is the husband's responsibility to decide whether he should confirm his wife's oath or annul it. 
Here it is, the husband who wants the vow to be confirmed. Now let me just clarify, in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, the law makes very clear regulations about what women were and were not allowed to do when making a vow. And that if they made a vow, a husband could come in and completely annul it within a certain time period. Now I realize that is not an easy pill to swallow for those who swim in the world of modern feminism. But essentially, this law was designed to keep wives from finding a loophole of being unsubmissive to their husbands. Think about it like this. What if a wife said to her husband, Look, I know that you said not to buy that particular necklace, but I made a vow to God that I would buy it, and so now I have to fulfill my vow. Obviously, there are loopholes that people could find in terms of vows, and so what happens in this instance is God closes the loophole and says that a husband, in order to properly lead his wife, was able to annul any vow made by his wife. And even though Elkanah was not great at comforting his wife, we saw last week, he was a very godly man. And he was a man with love for the Lord and a desire for God's will to be done. These two, Hannah and Elkanah, they both serve as godly examples of faithful obedience to the Lord. And here it is the husband who says, yes, may you carry out your vow. Verse 24, and when she, Hannah, had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Now, in those days, children were often weaned between the ages of two and three, being that verse 24 ties itself up by saying that he had been weaned and that he was a small child, it probably indicates the fact that he was indeed probably between two and three years old. Earlier, I brought up two of my boys. Uh, The scholars that look at this say that he was probably younger than my youngest, Caspian, that was up here, or older than my older son that was up, or or younger than my older son at the oldest. Like, that's the range. Like, you're looking at these two little boys. Think of that, and now think of Samuel being dedicated for the rest of his life at that age to the Lord's service. I tend to think that he was on the younger end of that. I think that he was probably three, and I agree with the scholars who say that the, the reason there was a three-year-old bull that was brought is probably because that bull was born about the same time as the child. And so he was probably three years old when he was brought directly after he was weaned to Shiloh for the Lord's service. I want to pause for a second here and I want to talk about something that sometimes gets a little confused, especially in Baptistic churches, uh, and that's about baby dedications. Many churches do baby dedications. I used to do something uh, years ago that I would refer to as a parent dedication. And what this is, is where small children will be brought to the front and they will be dedicated before the church. And generally what I would do when I would lead these is I would say to the church, it is the responsibility of our congregation to raise this child, assisting the parents in pointing this child to the Lord in all that we do, that we will help the parents to disciple this child. And these parents are dedicating themselves to the service of ensuring that this child is raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, you may have noticed, we haven't done that for a long time at this church, and there is a reason for that. The reason is that personally, I have become convicted that those have served to hurt more than help the church of God, and here's why. First of all, there is a tendency that many people will invite family members to these, and those family members, by and large, because of our demographics, tend to be Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholics who come do not have a theological understanding that there is a distinction between what we are doing at a baby dedication and what they do at a baby baptism. And of course, we think theologically there's a difference. But then I began to ask myself, well, what is the difference? And as we look at it, it's important for us to realize that the reason historically Baptistic churches began doing that was because they looked at our Presbyterian brothers and our Episcopal brothers and others who are in the faith, and we, we saw that they would do events as child baptisms, and we said, well, we should do something like that. And then somebody picked up this fact that Samuel was dedicated. Why do we not dedicate all children? Now, a couple of years ago, um, when I was working through this theologically on my own, I had a conversation with a woman who is not a member here at our church, but she 
asked if we would be interested in doing a child dedication, uh, and I said, no, I don't think that we're going to do that. And she was seemingly quite offended, and I, and I just asked, can you, can you tell me why, biblically, you think this is a good idea? And she said, Samuel chapter 1. Samuel was dedicated to the work of the Lord. We should do that with all of our children. And I said, I mean this in all love, but you have to understand that if you do what it says in Samuel chapter 1, you have to leave your baby with me for the rest of his life. <laughs> and I don't think you're interested in doing that. You see, what's taking place here in Samuel is not a baby dedication in the sense that we think of baby dedications. What is taking place here is not even something that we are supposed to look at and learn to do with all of our children. This is not something that is ever repeated. It's not something that is ever commanded. No one else throughout the entire Old Testament or New Testament is ever supposed to follow in this particular mode. So when we look at baby dedications in our local church, what I want you to know is every time a child is born in this church, you are responsible to love that child, to care for that child, to assist the parents in serving that child, in training that child, in teaching the child in the way that it should go. Parents, every one of you are called to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and the church is called to assist you as much as we can. But there's no biblical ceremony that we see for that, and in order to avoid confusion, I don't intend to move forward with baby dedications, but certainly, whatever those original people who decided to dedicate their children were looking at, they certainly misunderstood what was happening here in the book of 1 Samuel. Let's jump ahead now to verse 25. It says, Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, I wish I could just kind of get into the head of Eli here. I wish I could have seen his face. I mean, look, I, I meet a lot of people. We have a lot of visitors. And I have to confess to you, there are some times that people come to church after not having attended for a very long time. Maybe they attended once, and then three years later, they show up again. And I don't remember them at all. It's, it's again, I am a forgetful person. And I, I feel terrible when this happens, but somebody will say to me, we've actually met before. And I, I, I apologize profusely. I'm sorry, I just, I just don't remember. Remind me. That's the limitation of my own mind. I wonder about Eli. Did he remember her? Maybe he didn't initially. And then when she said, I was the one who was praying here. Maybe that's why she gives more detail. I was the one who was here. And you thought I was drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was here praying. And I said, I wanted to have a child. Here he is. This is the child that I was praying for. Now, I really wish I could have seen his face when she says, and now he's going to stay here with you. <laughs> Congratulations, you've got a son. It's a boy. All we know for sure is that Eli accepted and that Samuel was left with him. We don't know the process. We don't know what his thought process was. We don't know if there was preparation. We don't know how long of a period of transi transition this was, how long she stayed there. Most scholars think that she would have been there roughly a week long. Uh, what is going on here is very important, and Eli even though he doesn't always understand what's going on, even though he's not always a good parent, even though he gets a lot of things wrong, Eli gets this right. He recognizes that she made a commitment, she made a vow, and that he affirmed that vow, and that in doing so, he already committed himself to doing this, whether he knew it or not. This certainly says something also as to how Samuel was raised. As I was preparing this sermon, the most convicting thing to me was the fact that Samuel was so well-trained by his parents that he was able to worship the Lord in the fa face of being dropped off for the rest of his life. I was convicted because I have certainly become way too lax over the course of the summer in terms of daily devotions and prayer time with my own children. Parents, our time with our kids is going to be shorter than we think it is. It moves really fast. Let's make every day count. Let's point our kids to the gospel at every meal, in every conversation, with our entertainment choices, in our consistency in corporate worship. Look, you can't save your kids, but you can point them to Christ. You can instruct them in truth, and you can even do that when they are very young. One of the first things that our children usually say, not the first words, but 
Some of the first words that our kids usually say are the words to the gospel song. And the reason they say those words is because we sing those words to our kids almost every night of their lives. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. We sing that to them when they go to bed, and it almost becomes an afterthought for us as we're singing it. It just is such a natural thing. Well, even this past week, my wife told me that Augustine, our daughter, one and a half years old, starting to sing the words of that song, Holy God. Those are the only words she knows so far, Holy God. That's a pretty good start. She has no idea what it means. That's okay. We're training her up by God's grace to the best of our ability to learn that there is a holy God who in love became perfect man to bear my blame. We're trying to train them up. Parents, let's do this and do it to the best of our ability. Notice that the very last verse, you see that Samuel himself is standing there in the place of worship and he, the child, whether he was three years old or five years old, that child was worshiping the Lord. That speaks volumes to Hannah and Elkanah's commitment to training him up in the way that he should go. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to finish out with three applications that we can learn from this passage. First, I want to encourage you to pray. Hannah is never confused about the fact that her prayer was part of the equation in Samuel's birth. The very name that she gave to Samuel indicates that she understood her prayers were an integral part of God working this out in her life. But I want to make sure that we understand how we should pray for things that we want. In order to do that, I want to share with you four ways that you might be doing it wrong when it comes to prayer. So, sub point A, you don't. If you're honest with yourself, how often is your first instinct to complain about your circumstances or to grumble under your breath or to have a defeatist attitude or to get angry or to become fearful about your circumstances rather than going to the Lord and praying about them. The biggest problem with most of our prayer lives is that they are woefully limited. When you desire something that is morally acceptable, pray about it. Yes, you heard that right. You heard me right. The guy who always preaches against the prosperity gospel, yes, I'm telling you, pray for things that you want. James is speaking about earthly possessions in James chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, murder there, I think, is figurative language. But notice what he says at the end of the verse. You do not have because you do not ask. So yes, we should be praying for things. Hannah had a desire and she asked for it. That is not wrong. But there is a wrong way to ask, which brings us to the second wrong way that we pray, that you are selfish. Because you are good at counting, you know that after James chapter 4 verse 2 comes James chapter 4 verse 3. And in James chapter 4 verse 3, he continues his thought and says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here we find that sometimes God denies our prayer requests because our motives are not good. Sometimes your prayer requests are asking for things that are far outside of what God desires for you. What God wants for you is here, and what you want is over here. And so you are asking for something that is very far outside of his plan. Now, earlier I introduced you to Mordecai. He was the older of the two boys on the stage. What if Mordecai came to me and asked me to give him a car? What if he, Dad, I need a car. Well, I get him a Hot Wheels car. And he says, no, 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 Dad. I need a car, a real car, a car that drives on the road. I want to get in. I want to fly down the highway, Dad. You need to give me a car. And every day he asks me to go to the car lot and pick one out. Well, obviously the answer is no, and it's no for a million reasons. And then what if he modified his request and said, okay, don't garbage, just let me drive yours. Just let me drive, Dad. I don't have to drive all the time, just once in a while, just pull over on the side of the LIE and I'll take us the rest of the way. Well, the answer is still going to be no. Well, why is it going to be no? Because I love him. And because I also love everyone else that's around him. I, I love people too much, and especially I love him too much, 
to let him get behind the steering wheel of a Honda Odyssey brand guided missile. No, you can't drive. My stance on that is not going to change. So what needs to happen? If my will is here and his will is here, his will needs to conform to mine. My will will not change. His questions need to shift to align with my will. That is what prayer is like. That is what Jesus is talking about when he says that if you pray anything in my name, I will do it. In other words, it doesn't mean that you just tack the word Jesus onto any request that you make. That's some kind of a cheap incantation. Oh, I want this in Jesus' name. Poof. No, obviously this is not magic. It means that you align your will with his will. You see, the goal of praying is never to convince God of something. That's not why we pray. Sometimes when my kids ask me things, they have to convince me to do something because I don't want to. Dad, can we go play? Can we go do this? I just want to lay here for a second. No, can we go? Can we go? And they have to convince me. But God doesn't run out of energy like I do. They don't have to convince God of anything. You don't have to convince him. And you're not asking him in order to change his mind. If his will is here, it will never shift from this point. That is his perfect will for you. One of the biggest things that happens when we pray is exactly what happened to Hannah. That our desires begin to shift to match his desires. It changes our minds about what is ultimately important. It helps us to submit our desires to a God that we know will give us what is best. Mordecai can trust that my answer, no, is good because I love him. And even though he wants to drive, he can't because I love him. And so as he begins to understand my love, he will begin to shift his asking. The third reason that sometimes we pray wrong is that you overestimate your own spiritual maturity. Part of the reason that God does not answer your prayers in your timing is that God is causing you to develop spiritual maturity. Hannah is one of the godliest women in the entire Bible. Now, we talk a lot about how men in the Bible, they all make mistakes. They're all awful, right? Every one of them. They're all awful. Every last one of them fails. Adam, you've got Noah gets wasted. You've got Moses kills a guy. You've got David. We don't even get into all the details of his mistakes. We'll figure that out in 2 Samuel. As you go through all of these guys who are heroes in the Bible outside of Jesus, we talk often about how, yes, all of them make mistakes, but we don't do that about the ladies as often, but it's also true. Eve took the first bite. Then you get to Sarah. When she gets the promise about a son coming, she laughs at God. Who does that and gets to live? As you go through, you see Rebecca lying to her husband, you see every, pretty much every woman in the Bible, same thing. There's only a few that we see that are super godly women. And we highlight those women often. We've got Ruth and we've got Esther and we've got Deborah. We've got Hannah. And of all of the Christians in the Bible, of all of the people who followed after the Lord, I would count Hannah as the second godliest woman in the Bible. If you want to know who's first, come next Sunday. I'll tell you all about it. But I want you to know that in the midst of looking at her as a godly woman, there's a reason she got there. And part of that reason was because God said no to her for so long. Part of the reason she was so godly was because she had to go through the turmoil of God telling her no over and over and over and over. Part of the way that she grew into a godly woman was through persistence in spite of suffering. Her godliness was spurred on in the midst of having that other wife constantly mock her. It was in the midst of her sorrow that she finally learned to prize the Lord above all else. Next week, we're going to get to her prayer. You're going to see the, one of the godliest and powerful prayers in the Bible. And that doesn't happen if she doesn't go through all of that turmoil first. Now, you might laugh at the idea that Mordecai would ask me to drive because it's obvious by anyone who looks at him, he's not ready to drive. Yet at the same time, you will ask for things from God that would destroy you if he said yes, at least if he said yes right now. You see, there will come a day, Lord willing, when Mordecai is ready to drive. And at that time, I would be overjoyed to teach him how to drive. Maybe I wouldn't, but I'll, I'll be overjoyed that he'll be able to drive and that we'll be able to get smaller vehicles because we can fit 
you know, people in them at that point, I will be overjoyed that our kids grow and mature and that they can handle greater responsibility. But not right now. Consider how wise are the words of Agur in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. He prays and asks for two things. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Now, do you see what he's saying right there in that portion? He's saying, don't give me so much that I forget that I need you. That man understood that he shouldn't pray for all of the extensive wealth that he wanted. Just pray for what I need. We should be praying measured prayers, acknowledging that we don't always know what's best for us, and asking God to help our prayers align with his perfect will for what is truly our good. In other words, if you are praying and your prayer is asking for something over here, acknowledge that it may be over here. Lord, I don't know if this is your will. If it's not your will, help your will be done and help me understand it. Which brings us to our fourth way that our prayer lives often go wrong, and that is that you assume God's motives. How silly would it be if Mordecai said to me, if you really love me, you will let me drive? Well, that is absurd, but that's exactly the kind of faulty thoughts that we have about the Lord all the time. If God really loved me, he would give me fill in the blank that I'm praying about. Hannah finally came to the point that she understood that God loved her even though he had not given her what she wanted. Part of the reason that God has chosen to work through prayer is so that it will cause us to see that God truly does love us. Now, you might not see that immediately. Sometimes, as a believer, you see God answer prayer and you say, it's clear God answered this prayer and obviously God is working his love in the life of this person or in my life. And there are some times when God answers and you just can't understand how that is loving. Just like Mordecai might not understand how me saying no is loving. But I guarantee you that when you arrive at heaven, everything will become clear that God's ways were better than your ways. Don't assume his motives. Application one, pray. The main focus of our last sermon, the one last week, was on how we should respond when we don't get what we want. The last two applications today are built around the question, what do we do when God does give us the things that we ask for? Application two, receive. How do you receive God's gifts? There are two things that we learn in this chapter that should shape the way that you receive gifts. First, acknowledge the giver. Hannah and Elkanah both acknowledged that this baby was from the Lord. How easy would it have been for them to say, Oh, well, we know how this whole thing works. We know the biology of it. It just happened to work out this time. They don't do that. When the Lord gives a child, they acknowledge this child is from the Lord. Do you know that every child is from the Lord? If the Lord has given you children, it is a good, precious gift from the Lord. This is true of every good thing in your life, not just children. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Where do your good gifts come from? Every last one of them comes from the hand of a benevolent God. If you have anything, anything, he has graciously given it to you. Acknowledge the giver. Secondly, give thanks. Hannah and Elkanah here give thanks by taking sacrifices to Shiloh. They did that in accordance with Old Covenant law. But you can see that there was much more to it than just the fact that they took an animal and sacrificed it. They showed thankfulness in all of their communication here. Every word is dripping with thanks to God for what he has done. Thanks, sometimes we just pawn it off and say, yeah, I went to church. Yeah, I prayed about it. And that's it. Does your life reveal that you are actually thankful for something? I love that these two, they recognize that this child is a blessing and they follow through with the promise to dedicate him. But everything about them screams, thank you, God. In accordance with Colossians 4.2, we see that we should do the same. It reads, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it 
with thanksgiving. In other words, keep praying, and whether or not you get what you ask for, be thankful. I remember distinctly as a little boy, uh, it was around Christmas time one year, when I was maybe 10 years old, around that era, my parents packed up a couple of bags of books that we had kind of outgrown in our family, and we took them to a family in our church that had a lot less money, that they were kind of struggling through that Christmas season, and we didn't do anything fancy. We didn't wrap them. We just kind of put them in those, if you remember the old blue Walmart plastic bags that are probably illegal now. We put them in those bags, and we took them to their house to drop them off, and we knocked on the door, and I got to go up there with my mom and drop them off, and I remember distinctly when they opened the door, they invited us in, and they began to open the bags and look at the books, and I remember distinctly when the father said, before you read them, kids, we're going to get down on our knees, and we're going to pray, and we are going to thank God that he gave us these beautiful books. I have given my kids a lot of books. I've given a lot of things, and we have been given a lot of things. And do you know what I realized this week? How rarely I do that. How rarely I recognize this is a good gift from the Lord, and how rarely I even turn and say, thank you. Brothers and sisters, every good and every perfect gift comes from God. We should thank Him, and we should do so endlessly. And I'm not talking now about just external, earthly, worldly things. I am talking about the fact that you have reason to give thanks no matter what you have or no matter what you don't have, because you have Jesus Christ. And if you have Him, you have reason to give thanks in all things, at all times, with all circumstances, give thanks. That's application two, how we receive. Application three, worship. The theme of the section of the text that we're covering today is found by looking for simple repetition. And when the text repeats a word over and over, especially in Hebrew, it's clear that there's an emphasis being made by the author. And in this chapter, that word is the word ask. Let me show you just a few places it shows up. Look again at verse 20. There it says, In due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now remember, Samuel means asked. Samuel asked, asked, asked. I called on his name, I called his name asked, for I have asked. Now jump down to verse 27. For this child I prayed, asked, and the Lord granted me my petition. That is also the word ask. But here is where I want to show you something really important. If you look at verse 8, you're going to see that it's translated very differently across various uh, faithful Bible translations. I'll show you a few of them up here on the screen. The New International Version says, So now I give him to the Lord, for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. The New American Standard says, So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. The American Standard Version says, Therefore I have granted him to Jehovah. As long as he liveth, he is granted to Jehovah. The ESV says, Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now there's a reason why those faithful translations are struggling to come up with the best word to use there. It's really hard because this is one of the places that Hebrew and English just do not play nicely together. You see, the word that Hannah uses there, the word that we see as given, the word that we see as dedicated, the word that we see as granted, and the word that we see as lent, is all also the word ask. It just says, I asked him to the Lord. Therefore, I have asked him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is asked to the Lord. And in English, that makes no sense. That's not how we speak. But if you think about what is being said, it actually does make a lot more sense because it makes no sense for Hannah to lend something to God because she doesn't own Samuel. She isn't making some kind of lease agreement here with the Lord for who is given to God that God should repay. She isn't giving him because she doesn't own him. She isn't granting him because she doesn't have the authority to give or take away Samuel when she wants. Of the options, dedicate is the best one, but even that falls short of the weight of what Hannah is saying. What she is saying is something like this. I asked you to give me a son, and now I am asking you to use him for your purposes. I am asking you, God, to take him and to use him for your glory. Now let me ask. 
Is that how you respond when God gives you what you want? Is that how you respond when God gives you the desires of your heart, the things that you have been praying for? Everything that you have, every skill, every dollar in the bank, every nail in your house, ultimately it all belongs to the Lord. And you can't give him what you don't own. You can't give it to him. You can't, you can't lend it to him. It is his. We see that Hannah recognized that in her precious prayer. We see that this little Samuel, this child that she asked for, she acknowledged, this isn't my child. This is yours. That is worship. When you realize that everything that God gives you is for the purpose of his glory, then everything in your life begins to orient around serving him. Not out of compulsion, but as a reflex. When you realize just how much God has given you in a relationship with him, the most natural thing in the world is to respond by using those gifts to love him in return. If he has entrusted you with things, serve him with those things. That is worship. Ask rightly in prayer, respond thankfully in your heart, and worship freely with everything that he has entrusted to you. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the example of Hannah and Elkanah. We're thankful, Lord, that we can learn from this text how we can better pray and ask you for the desires of our hearts and how we can better receive those good gifts and how we can turn and worship you with them. Lord, I just pray that in doing so, you would strengthen us, that you would help us But Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep the gospel centered in all of it. That everything that we ask for, that we would be asking for your glory, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your son, for the sake of his kingdom, that we would not ask, as James 4, 3 says, for our own purposes, for selfish reasons, but that we would ask for things that would be a benefit to your kingdom. And Lord, I also pray that we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that no matter what the answer is, we see that you have, you have showed with undoubtable proof that you do love us because you gave us the greatest gift, your own son, Jesus Christ. And so that regardless of what you give and regardless of what you take away, that we would respond with thankfulness. And Lord, I also pray that we would respond with worship, that we would acknowledge that everything we own belongs to you and that we would never think of it as giving to you or lending to you, but that we would acknowledge that we are just asking you to use what you have blessed us with for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.